Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, get ready for this, The Carpetbag Gospel. In one of the most unique messages, well, ever, Eric unpacks the gospel, and no pun intended, as you'll soon see. What may appear as unattractive to the world is packed full with the glory and beauty of the life of Jesus Christ. You are sure to smile at least once over the course of this message, and certainly fall deeper in love with the glorious gospel of Jesus. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. All right, the carpetbag gospel. Now there's a book out there called the Ragamuffin Gospel. And I just want to forewarn you that this message is so polar opposite to what's in that book that it would be laugh out loud. However, it sounds somewhat similar. Okay, the carpetbag gospel. Now, if you saw me walking up with this mysterious item, I'll get to it. But it's a... And it's not truly a carpet bag. I'm not exactly sure what to call it, but it's not that attractive. Let's just say that. So what I want to do as we're going through this is I'm going to lay out a concept for you. I'm going to let you in on the grand, glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. But to do it, I'm going to come at it from a very unusual route. And to do that, I need to get some raw materials out on the table. So let's deal with some raw materials. Every Ellerslie student has heard fact, faith, and experience. You know, I don't know, five, six times in a semester, maybe more. Fact, faith, and experience. Three characters. And they're all commissioned to walk a ridgepole. But this is no ordinary ridgepole. This is like a razor-sharp edge. And it's, it's technically impossible. No one really could walk it. However, the commission is, you must walk it. And so the first character steps forward, and his name is Fact. Now, in Christianity, we typically would call fact truth. But for a fresh take on this, let's call them fact, because fact and truth are the same thing in general. Except most of us associate facts with sciences and mathematics, and we associate truth with things regarding spiritual uh, matters. But they're the same. Two plus two equals four. Well, the same is true. When you find out a fact about God, it's the same. And when I'm teaching Hudson, my seven-year-old, about math, And if I teach him, he is beyond 2 plus 2 equals 4, but if I teach him 2 plus 2 equals 4, do you know what I can tell him? Is that that is a fact. It is truth. There is no lie in it. There is no shadow of darkness in that. It equals 4. And guess what? A billion years from now, it will equal 4. When you know fact, when you know truth, it's unchanging. Truth does not alter. It does not evolve. It's stationary. No one argues the fact that 2 plus 2 has always equaled 4 since the creation of the earth. However, we argue that truth in spiritual matters goes all over the place and gets weird. It's the same thing. It's fact. Fact doesn't alter. Fact doesn't change. And so the first character to get up on this ridgepole is fact. And the strangest thing, but though it's impossible, he walks it. And he walks it without staggering, without wobbling. And everyone's just awestruck. He's doing it. Well, that's because he's fact. The next character is where you sort of fit into this. His name is Faith. You see, Faith has a choice of where Faith sticks its eyesight, where it sticks its confidence. And if it looks to fact, if it looks to truth, and focuses its gaze on fact, guess what? It, too, will pull off the impossible. And it will gain balance and be able to walk the ridgepole. Now, life would be so easy if that's all there was. All of us would just follow fact. Life would work. However, there's a third character, and this third character is a nuisance. 
His name is Experience. Experience is a loudmouth, and he's always reaching out and trying to claw at Faith's shirt, saying, hey, turn around and consult me. Remember Great Aunt Martha? Remember Great Aunt, Great Aunt Harold? Did you hear that? <laughs> Great Uncle Harold? Remember he prayed and God didn't do anything? Do you remember that one time when, you know, two years ago when this happened? There is so much weight in the camp of experience that causes you, instead of to look at the fact, to turn around and consult the experience. Now, let me give you a little tidbit of information on experience. Experience has no balance. Experience, if you consult it, will fall off the ridgepole, and guess what will happen to faith right along with it? Mm -hmm. Faith will follow experience. Whatever you fix your eyes on, you take on its disposition. Now, some of you could say, well, if faith is always falling, or I'm sorry, experience is always falling off the ridgepole, then fact must not work. Because is God just wanting us to believe in fact and follow fact blindly? Doesn't experience matter? You better believe it matters. It matters greatly to God. And he wants to give you the secret to how experience can walk the ridgepole. Experience is a loudmouth. And if you consult it and look back at it, it will fall off and you will fall off with it. The secret to getting experience to walk the ridgepole is that faith must follow fact and must not deviate from its position. When God says it, he means it, and he didn't stutter. And we say, I believe it. And though there is noise back here, and I know some of you have had some serious experiences that would attempt to confute and refute what it says in the word of God. However, your job is to believe God over your experience. And when you do, it's amazing. But you will begin to notice that you will gain stability in your life And your experience will begin to gain balance. And your experience will begin to support faith, which then supports fact. And now, the world can behold in and through your testimony in your life that sure enough, fact is true. You believed in it, and look at your experience. It matches. Fact, faith, experience. We happen to live in a Christian culture which prizes experience over fact, which is why we rewrite the Bible and why we come up with elaborate doctrines to explain our experience Instead of to say, you know what, it says it pretty clearly here in Scripture. Uh, and they say, well, yeah, I, I know it sounds like that, but obviously none of us can live that. And so as a result, we need to rewrite the whole thing to match with our experience instead of fact. Okay, that's important for where we're going. I want you to realize that God has spoken. He's preserved his word. It's the word of God, and he knows what he's talking about. When God says it, it's just fact. I know I sound a little overconfident in that, and you could, you know, be intellectually assessing my statement and going, well, I don't know. I think he's a little ignorant about all the potholes of, you know, of the lack of logic and the lack of truthfulness in the Bible. It's just a bunch of exaggerations. It's just a book of men. Well, let's keep moving forward. The importance of reckoning. Uh, I have a $10 bill uh, beneath my shoe. Uh, can I have a volunteer from the front row? You guys are a little overeager, aren't you? Uh, who doesn't have any money on them? Keep your hand up. Okay, what, Tim, I've been joking with you about this the whole semester, haven't I? Okay, Tim, because the first day, didn't you have something in your pocket? Or you had some other reason why I nixed you, wasn't it? Oh, I just did it? Okay. All right, Tim, uh, to make up for whatever I did in the very beginning uh, and how I've been making fun of you the whole semester, we'll, we'll, we'll let it be you. Uh, oh, Joy, you're concerned about that? Okay, well, Tim can give you his money after he reckons it. 
okay? Uh, the importance of reckoning. Reckoning is an important biblical concept that Paul the Apostle unveils in Romans chapter 6. Because basically he's saying you can know things in your head. You can understand truth in your head. You can know about it. You can know that Jesus Christ died 2,000 years ago. You can know he rose from the dead. You can know that he ascended to be with the Father. You can know that he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. You can know that he's returning for his children someday in the future. That doesn't mean your life changes. Facts and data don't change your life. And I could tell you that there's a $20 bill beneath my shoe and it belongs to you. However, if you go out today and you face a $19 challenge, you could say, uh, yeah, well, uh, you know, earlier today, Eric gave me $20. However, if you're facing that challenge and you don't have it in your pocket, what good is that? The fact that I gave you $20. What is the key that is needed to be able to access the 20 to make it useful out in the real world? You must reckon it. You must account it. You must actually grab a hold of it. Truth must be activated in our lives. Okay? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a very quick exercise, and this is the abbreviated version. At Ellerslie, we teach this concept in depth to understand how faith works in regards to real promises of God. So Tim is our little guinea pig here. And I'm going to, you know, Tim, every time you walk out those front doors you're facing a test. And uh, you, you said, why don't you stand up here real quick. Uh, you've said that you do not have in your pockets any money right now, right? So if there's a $9 challenge out that front door, it's just that one weakness that you keep failing in. It, it could be lust, it could be fear, it could be anxiety, it could be pride, it could be greed. There's various things that we as men or we as the body of Christ trip in. Okay, and there's a bait that's waiting out there. There's a challenge that awaits your soul. If it's $9, if it's going to tax you $9, you have to have $9 worth of strength inside of you to resist. Do you have that? So what's going to happen when you walk out that door? He's going to fail the test, he proclaims. And guess what? That's just logical. That's just a statement of fact. And what supports his fact? The fact that every time he's ever walked out those doors in the past, he's failed it too. Why should he expect anything different? This is how most of us live as Christians even. Our experience testifies to the fact of defeat. And therefore, why would we begin to think of anything different moving forward? It's a good question. Well, you shouldn't expect anything different moving forward if Tim has to try and find something inside of his own pockets. Keep digging. You see anything in there? There's nothing in there. How about in that pocket on your shirt? Nothing? Oh, no. Oh, no. This is called the bad news. (laughs) You see, the bad news is Tim does not have anything in and of himself to meet the challenge. He's lacking, and therefore, for the rest of his life, if he remains in this state, he will always fail that test. But I have some good news for him. You see, I've seen his need, and I have made provision for him. Now, I usually don't stick it beneath my shoe when I give this illustration. I'm sure I could come up with some symbolism of all things being under Christ's feet or something. (laughs) But the point being, this isn't a normal thing, but this is our simplified, abbreviated version of it. Tim... I know that you have been failing every time you walk out those doors. And that's frustrating, isn't it? Are you tired of that? Are you interested in being able to walk in triumph and victory and be able to deal? Because if I was God, I would literally have to say to him, Tim, I've commissioned you to overcome that. He said, but I can't. I know. But I have made provision for it so that you can. Okay, so this is how the gospel works. Now, I'm not God, just to clarify. 
I can't help Tim pass that test. But in this little micro example, I'm going to say, since we're making it $9 as opposed to $9 trillion, okay? As a result, we can give a little illustration here to show how someone on the outside who sees a need can meet that need. Okay, so I say, Tim, I see your need, and I've made provision for you. How much do you need when you go out that door? $9. And do you have it? No. So you're in a bad strait. So I have made provision. I've made $10 available to you. Okay? Now, it's under my shoe, uh, and it's yours. Okay? Now, this is a little strange because somehow you'd have to get under my shoe to get it, but uh, a little more complicated of an illustration. But the key is he can't see it with his natural eyes. The promises of God, the provision of God, isn't just tangible. Like we could say, well, God, you stick the $10 in my hand, and I'll believe. That isn't how Christianity works. You see, Tim has been facing a challenge, and God is saying, focus on fact instead of experience. Experience states defeat. Your experience, feel in your pocket right now, you don't have the money. But now the good news enters into Tim's life. I make a declaration that I have made provision for you, Tim. I have $10 for you. You can't see it, but it's under my foot, okay? Now I'm going to ask Tim a question. Do you have what you need to pass that test? What does Tim say? In a way. Well, let's ask it again. I have made provision for you. I've given you $10. What's the challenge out there? $9. So I'm giving you my word that I have made provision for you. It's a promise. It's yours. It belongs to you. Do you have that which you need to pass that test? He said, yes. Now, that's strange. Check your pockets. Okay, in his pockets, he doesn't have the money, but he says he has it. How does he have it? How do you have it? You believe what I say. What's another term for that? He has it by faith. You see, he is taking, that's reckoning. He is reckoning the fact that upon the merit and the confidence he has in my nature and my character. Of course, he also saw me slip something under my foot. But it could just be a memo note, a little yellow sticky note. But he's taking confidence in my nature and believing my word. And when he believes it, he now has a newfound confidence. And so if I said, there's a $9 test waiting for you out there, suddenly he can reason towards that test differently than he ever has in the past. Sort of shrugs his shoulders and says, hey, I don't care. I have what it takes to pass that test. And then I could pepper him and say, well, have you ever passed that test before? And his experience would say no. But what is the difference? He is putting his confidence in fact. He's putting his confidence in the word, in this case, of Eric, but in our case, in the word of God, the promise. Now, some of us could say, well, I've been failing that my entire life. You know that Jesus made provision for you? And just because you didn't know about the provision, you can sit down, by the way. Tim, I may ask you to stand up and reckon again. But just because you have always failed that test doesn't mean that the provision hasn't been under his foot the entire time. You see, some of us are just not alerted to the fact that there is an answer for our dilemma. And so when you know about something, before Tim goes out that door, what should he do? He should grab the 10, shouldn't he? I mean, wouldn't it be a little ridiculous for him just to have his new confidence? Like, yeah, yeah, I have everything I need. And then go and face it in his own strength? He tests his pockets. He doesn't have it. Who has it? In this case, Eric has it. But in our case, Jesus has it. So I want you to demonstrate, Tim, to them 
how you would reckon the truth, okay? If you were going to go out and face a test, what would be the first thing you would do? I would go get the 10, or he would go get the 10. So why don't you go get the 10? Okay, Tim is currently moving towards Eric, and we're still trying to figure out what's going to happen with my foot when he gets close. Uh, okay, move, move closer. Okay, he's walking. This is what we do in our spiritual life. You're walking very slow. Uh, okay, stop right there. Do you see it yet? He doesn't see the 10, but does that change your faith in the fact? Because what's your confidence lie in? It lies in my word. And so therefore, my word isn't going to change because my nature's not altering. I didn't get all weird between that moment and when he's standing here. I'm the same. Jesus, it says, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's no shadow of turning in him. When he makes a promise, he means it. See how I get loud every now and then? <laughs> so Tim is making his way towards the promise. And you must endure. It's called the test of faith. Because along this journey, he's going to be peppered with all sorts of statements from the enemy. There's no 10. Have you ever seen anyone else with a 10? Have you ever seen anyone else pass that test? There's nothing there. God doesn't know what he's talking about. That was for a different dispensation. That is no longer available to the church of Jesus Christ. There's a thousand things that will hit Tim. What does Tim do? Tim responds with faith. God spoke it. He meant it. He doesn't consult experience, but he keeps walking. Now, we don't have a lot of distance here, but if he keeps walking, and I, you know, why don't you get under that shoe there? He still can't see it, but as he progresses, what does he get? Show him. We have a real 10. I hope that's a 10. <laughs> we have a real 10. It's crinkling between his fingers. Now, suddenly, his experience has matched up with fact. This is Christianity. But you must, you can sit down, buddy, thanks. Uh, you can give him a hand, too. Uh, most of us, the way we handle our Christianity is we want our experience to match up, and then we'll believe the fact. You see the problem with that? We want our experience to match up, and then we'll get the fact. If someone sticks the $10 in my hand, oh, then I'll believe that I can overcome you believe the word of God. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. That is the secret to unlocking the treasure chest of heaven. The plane. Now, I'm going to go through this very simply, but there's a concept in, uh, in Christianity that Paul unveils in Scripture, and it's the concept of being in Christ. Not near Christ, not on top of Christ, in Christ. And one of the illustrations we use commonly here at Ellerslie is the plane. And you see, if you're at an airport and you're standing near a plane, you can esteem the ability for that plane to fly, and you can watch in awe and wonder because you try and flap your arms and you can't fly. See, there's a law of gravity in effect that holds you down. But that plane functions by a higher law. It's called the law of aerodynamics. And that plane, when it sets off to fly, flies. You, when you set off to fly, fail. And it's frustrating because we read in Scripture. Now, it doesn't say in Scripture that you need to fly like a plane, okay? So this is an adaptation to link with us as a, in a metaphorical way. But imagine if it said in Scripture, you must fly, which in a sense it does. It just doesn't say fly. You must be perfect as he is perfect. You must be holy as he is holy. Someone strikes you on one cheek, you turn to them the other also. When you're falsely accused, leap for joy. You try that. That doesn't come naturally to any of us. Flap your wings as hard as you can. You're not going anywhere. And so you can stare at the plane and go, wow, how does he do it? Of course, the plane is Jesus Christ. 
and we read the story, we meditate upon the work of the cross, and we're amazed with the fact that he was silent unto slaughter, that he took the wrath of the Father upon himself and saved us. He was the intercessor. He took the blow that was rightfully ours. Amazing. You try and imitate it. Flap your arms. Try and fly. You're not going anywhere. There's a law of gravity that's holding you down. So you could be near the plane. You could pray to the plane. You could sing a song to the plane. You could memorize all the attributes of planes, the history of planes. It doesn't help you fly. Now, you could get on top of the plane. You could kiss the plane. You could hug the plane. When that plane takes off, what happens? The law of gravity is still in effect because you're outside the plane. The secret to Christianity lies in position. You must be in Jesus. And I know that sounds completely ridiculous. Like, why does it matter? If there's a strong tower here, and you come up to the strong tower and hug it, you have an archer behind you with a fiery arrow, and he's shooting at you. He's going to hit your rear end every time. And it's going to hurt. And guess what? You can say, but I'm near the tower. I love the tower. The secret of a tower is you must be in it. If you are in that tower, that same arrow when shot at you bounces off the wall. You see, that wall is Jesus. He is our refuge and our strong tower. He's our armor. This is Jesus. It's a person. And we must be in him. In Isaiah 61, it calls him the robe of righteousness. He is our garment of salvation. He is clothing. And as a result, we are able to enter into the very presence of the Most High God. Not on our own merit but on his, because he is perfectly righteous. He is perfectly holy. And when we are in him, the law of gravity, or in our case, the law of sin and death, no longer rules over us. But now we function by a higher law, not the law of aerodynamics, but the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. You have to be in the plane. And when you're in the plane, do you know that you go where the plane goes? It's an amazing fact. But if you get in a plane, I went to Indiana, Indianapolis yesterday. I get in the plane in Denver, and the plane takes off for Indianapolis. I don't go to Chicago. I go to Indianapolis. Well, I know that sounds pretty obvious, but that's exactly how it works with Jesus. You know where he's going? He's going to the right hand of the Father. You know the only way to enter into the Father's presence, the only way to access that eternal life which is in the Father is through Jesus Christ. There's only one way to get there, and that's being in Christ. And where's he going? If you're on board, you go there. It's that simple. It's one of the most simplistic Annunciations of grand, majestic Christianity. That's the plan. The inheritance. Jesus Christ has made something available to us at the cross. What he came to give us was the privilege of being adopted into his family. And when you're adopted, you literally take on the inheritance of your father. And it's amazing, but the entire inheritance of Jesus Christ that he gained from his father, he has bequeathed to all those that enter into him. If you enter into him, you literally gain access to all he is. Listen to this scripture. Genesis 25, 5. And Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac. Does that matter to us? It's like, well, yeah, it doesn't really mean much to me. Isaac isn't his firstborn son. Isaac represents the promise, the one of promise, the one of faith. It's the lineage of faith that receives the full Abrahamic inheritance. Abraham had a lot to give. Isaac received, not part of it, all of it. And then you have Esau and Jacob, which are born to Isaac. And guess what? Jacob received all of it. The lineage of faith comes through what we could call the second born. The second born receives the full inheritance. You see, you know what in Christianity it says you must be born again? 
Your firstborn life, it's called the life of the flesh. It cannot receive the inheritance. It cannot receive the bounty of heaven. Jesus Christ has purchased it. But you cannot receive it unless you're born again. You must be the twice born. You must be the second. You must be made new to receive the bounty of heaven. I love this scripture. And Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac. Most of us, you know, we'd be happy with a scrap from the table. No, all. And that word, by the way, means all. The firstborn does not receive. Ishmael did not receive. Esau did not receive. Saul, the first king, did not receive. The old covenant did not receive. It was the new covenant that received the inheritance. It's the secondborn that gets it all. Firstborn eyesight. When you pop out of the womb, there are things in this earth that you naturally gravitate towards and esteem. Okay, just think about what we naturally esteem in our culture, our, our secular culture. We esteem power, position. We esteem beauty and good looks. We esteem talent. I mean, especially like musical talent or athletic talent. Uh, we esteem uh, money. We esteem certain things. And if someone has them or someone boasts them, then we put them high in our pecking order of society. The firstborn has a certain eyesight. Now, you guys saw that I brought something up with me, right? You know, we're calling it a carpet bag today, but that's not very attractive, okay? Now, someone found it at, I don't know, it was Goodwill yesterday, and I said, I need it to look fairly ugly, okay? Old and beaten. I don't know how they did this. Before I took it up here, Nathan Johnson said, yeah, some of the stuff on it that they put on it is still wet, so you might want to stay, <laughs> stay clear of it, uh, okay? So we have ourselves something that we naturally don't esteem, Every single one of us in here looking at that, if you could choose what you want to go to the airport with tomorrow on your new flights, you know, to Hawaii, you're not going to pick that bag. Eric, I saw that you had a bag at church. Could I borrow that? <laughs> no one's attracted to that bag. The same is true with our spiritual eyesight and our fleshly eyesight. When you're firstborn, you're the firstborn. When you come out of your mom's womb, you're firstborn. You have firstborn eyesight. And what you esteem is actually not what God esteems. Something's wrong with you. Jesus, this is what it says of the Messiah, Jesus, which, by the way, I think is the most beautiful. As it says in Scripture, he's the chiefest among 10,000. He's the fairest of the fair. I absolutely love Jesus Christ. And yet, you know what it says about him in the Old Testament? He has no form or comeliness, which is a word for beauty. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. His visage is marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. He is treated with contempt. He is reviled. Even a thief named Barabbas is preferable to him. He is wearing a crown of thorns. He has given his back to those who struck him and his cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. He does not hide his face from shame or spitting. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He is a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All those who see him ridicule him. They shoot out the lip and they shake the head. Well, by the way, that's not complimentary language. See, this is basically saying when Jesus comes as the Messiah, he's going to come into a firstborn world. And the firstborn world will not have eyes to see him. And this is what they will do. Not just how they will see him, but how they will treat him. Because this is how we treat the things of heaven 
before we are awakened. And every single one of us stands guilty, charged on that ground. We do not naturally gravitate towards Jesus. I mean, it's, we don't want to be associated with Jesus. I remember hearing about a man, uh, he was a famous lawyer, and he had always kept a Bible on his desk. This is back in the days when the lawyers would always use Blackstone's commentaries, which constantly referred to Scripture. And so he had a Bible on his desk. Then he became a Christian. And suddenly he felt this full weight of embarrassment for having a Bible there. It's really interesting. When you awaken to Jesus, suddenly you begin to, there's a propensity for shame because he really doesn't look that attractive to this world. Jesus knows it. God knew it even before Jesus came. Do we accept this? Do you know that when you become the second born in this world, this is how you are seen? Well, who do you reveal when you're a Christian? Christian. Christian. You reveal Jesus. Well, this is how he's seen in the world. There's no form or comeliness, There's no beauty that we would desire him. Now, he is the most beautiful. However, you're either a fragrance of life or a stench of death. And the second born is the only one that esteems it. The first born cannot behold it correctly. Esau. Esau is the first born. And so listen to this. And when her days to be delivered, this is speaking of Rebekah, his mother, were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red, all over like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And after that came out his brother, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel, and his name was Jacob. This is like us. We're just like Jacob, too. We're like Esau, and we're like Jacob. Our firstborn life is esteeming Esau, but our secondborn life starts out sort of like Jacob. We grab a hold of the flesh, and we're like, I think it has what I need. And if I could just be more like Esau, then. No. See, Jacob needed to be renamed to be Israel. And the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field. Okay, now which one are you going to esteem? Listen to this list. We have the firstborn, who's a cunning hunter and a man of the field. And all the guys go, yeah. All right, go Esau. And then look at this guy. And Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. Come on, buddy. Get out of the tent a little. Get some sun. Lift some lumber. Build some muscle. I picture him knitting in there, <laughs> drinking tea with his mother. It's like, come on, be a man. Every single one of us naturally esteems the firstborn in this. Now, some of the girls in here are a little concerned about how hairy he is. But the point is, our natural disposition is to esteem the firstborn. Let's just admit it. The secondborn, hey, I don't want to have anything to do with this guy. Yet, who got the whole inheritance? The second born. Okay, let's keep going. Saul. Saul is the first king of Israel, and he was esteemed by all the nation. They wanted a king, and they wanted Saul. Well, listen to why. And he had a son, speaking of his father, Kish, whose name was Saul, a choice young man and a goodly. That's a compliment, by the way, even if you've never heard the word before. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier, again, a compliment, person than he. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. This guy is literally head and shoulders above all of Israel. He's Israel's Goliath. If you're going to pick a king, who do you pick? I want that guy. And guess what? Saul rejected that guy. You know what he chose? The eighth son of Jesse. A shepherd boy. Wasn't even old enough to go to war. You've got to be kidding me. Uh-huh. The second born is the one that received the full inheritance. Eliab. Remember when uh, Jesse, or, I'm sorry, Samuel the prophet was coming to anoint the king? And he comes to Jesse and his sons. Jesse brings seven of his eight sons. Doesn't even bring 
David. And there's a scene. And it came to pass when they were come that Samuel, the prophet, looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Eyesight. Firstborn eyesight cannot see correctly what God sees. Secondborn eyesight. In John 1.14, Jesus is the word of God and he's come. Now he was rejected, but those who believe, listen to this statement. And the word became flesh or took on body and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The second, behold the glory of God. Glory, majesty, full of grace and truth. And it's beautiful to them. It's the second born eyesight. Listen to this. This is what it says in Scripture. The same Scripture that is describing him and how people with firstborn eyesight will see him. Same Scripture says he's the king of glory. He's the chiefest among 10,000. He's the king in his beauty, fairer than the children of men. A crown of glory and beauty. Yea, thou art altogether lovely. It's Jesus. All right. Introducing the old, ugly carpet bag. Uh. Jesus. Now, I know some of you can get offended and say, don't put Jesus' name on that. You'll understand as we progress. This is how Jesus is seen. What kind of bag do you want to carry around? If you're going to be identified with a bag, and you're going to lug around something in life, you're going to choose this? No. You've got to be kidding. I won't be seen anywhere near that thing. I don't want to be associated with that. I've only seen, I mean, weird down-and-outers carry something like this. No way! Welcome to the gospel. You see, there isn't anything naturally inside of you that esteems this. However, something strange happens within us when God awakens us. And something that we used to detest, we used to revile, we used to spit upon, suddenly we're attracted to. And we're like, I need what's in that bag. I can't keep living the way I'm living now. Here's, uh, I got this out of the morning edition this morning uh, of the Fashion Nazis Daily. Uh, it's written by Roger Hip Coolness. He's a columnist. And by the way, I made this up. Old, old ugly carpet bags are so passe. It is officially considered a fashion crime in the United States of America to be seen within 10 feet of one. It has been determined by the Foundation for Cultural Coolness that the illegal possession of an old, ugly carpet bag will lead to public jeerings and wide-eyed gawking. Verbal floggings, tar, and feathers are deemed appropriate punishment for such social insensitivity. This is how Christianity works. It's always worked this way. When you pick up the carpet bag of Jesus, it is literally ridiculed, held in contempt, and mocked by the world. That just goes with it. And some of you that might be still struggling with firstborn eyesight, you understand why. It's a joke. Every Christian's a hypocrite. Whoa, 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 whoa. Don't put a blanket statement over Christianity. Not every Christian is a hypocrite. I know they're hypocrites. Satan's number one agenda is to destroy the testimony of the saints by having people masquerade as Christians that are anything but. It's a great strategy, by the way. However, there is a real thing. I know what's in this bag. This bag has changed my life. And I purposely and deliberately have chosen to identify myself with the old, ugly carpet bag. And guess what? I'm the happiest man on planet Earth as a result. Now, I know we can't prove that. I'm still waiting for an Olympic event on happiness so that I can go after the gold. 
I am a happy man. Not because my life is easy. I have an extremely difficult life. However, I leap for joy daily. I have peace that passes understanding. Joy filled and exceeding within my life. I actually love people around me, even those that don't like me. I have a strange love for them. I love life. I love Jesus. I got it all out of this bag. You can't separate me from that bag. I'll die before you take my bag away from me. That's life and life abundant. So what's going to happen here is I'm going to set the stage for something. Some of these things that are on the stage are going to start to make sense. Okay, Introducing Nathan, the ripened soul. Where, where is Nathan? <laughs> Thanks, Nathan, for uh, coming out here and helping me with this. I really appreciate it. All right, so... Now, I'm going to call Nathan the ripened soul, which means he has been made ready, just like a piece of fruit. He's been made ready for the gospel. And just like fruit, there's a time when it's not yet ready to be harvested or plucked off the branch. And if you pluck it too soon, it destroys the fruit. Okay? And the same is true with a soul. So what, what I want you to hear in this message, you're going to hear it from two angles. And you can choose which angle you want. You could listen to this message over and over again and hear two different things going on. You're going to understand it from Nathan's side of receiving the gospel. And what Nathan is burdened with, we'll walk through this, okay? Because this is just the soul that has not yet found the carpet bag. Yeah, he might be pretty cool with his sleek rolling suitcase. However, he's dying with it, okay? So we'll explain it that way. But you're also going to look at it from the gospel tier side of things, of how do you engage a Nathan? How do you work the gospel to a Nathan? And so both sides, it'll be interesting as we go through this. Uh, and some of this stuff will make sense. We've got this crazy character back here. Uh, look at him. <laughs> By the way, this is called a mischievous grin. <laughs> Introducing Nathan, the ripened soul. Nathan has problems. Okay, so the, the problem with Nathan... Now, in all fairness to poor Nathan, this is an illustration. Ironically, this guy's name really is Nathan, too. <laughs> so this works out perfect. Uh, but Nathan is a man who has fully given himself to this carpet bag and identifies with this carpet bag daily. Okay, that's real life. Now let's get back to our illustration. You need to use your imagination. Nathan is a life in bondage now, okay, in this description. However, Nathan is ready for the gospel. And so what I want to do is I want, you, I want to acquaint you with how he was made ready, but also what is hindering him that has actually helped make him ready. You see, this isn't comfortable around his chest, but guess what? After a while, it risks exposing the fact that he wants out of it. And when someone wants out of it, there's a risk of them turning to the light. Uh -huh. So the enemy overplays his hand. The enemy that tries to dampen and oppress this life actually can end up awakening a life in and through the process. All right. Let's start out with a sleek, sleek, hip, rolling suitcase. This is impressive, buddy. Thank you. It's a nice-looking suitcase. Uh, too. Look yeah, I have to admit, that's very impressive, okay? <laughs> and everyone out here is very impressed with that. Uh, he is finding all his answers in himself. When Nathan has a challenge, you know what he goes to? He starts digging around in his suitcase. He is going to... He, I found an answer. Yeah. 
And so we see on the side of his suitcase, it says self, okay? Self is where all of us turn in our first life. Before we are born again, we have a suitcase, and it looks cool to the world. And when you turn to self and you esteem self, the world pats you on the back. Ah, that's the way to do it. That's the way I do it. We all turn to self, and that's Nathan's problem. The fact that he turns to self is actually what has caused him to have this rope around his chest, these shackles on his wrists, this mischievous character with a sly grin <laughs> holding his right arm. Okay? And there was something else. Oh, and you have a, do you have a burden? Yeah, there's a burden on his back. Okay? All of these things came about, guess why? Because he took hold of this suitcase. And he said, I will turn to me. And I will claim a position of authority in my life. And as we say at Ellerslie, he sat down in the throne that belongs to Jesus. And when he did that, the power of sin had power over him. Okay? So as we're walking through this, let's keep going. There's a burden on his back. And the burden, this is the burden of guilt and the condemnation of sin. If you ever read Pilgrim's Progress, this is similar. Okay? We didn't know how to create the big monster burden up here on his shoulder. So he has a backpack to symbolize it. However, that's what we have. We have a burden. Now, some of us aren't feeling it yet. But when you begin to awaken, when there's a stirring in your soul and you begin to recognize you're headed downward and fast, that burden gets heavy. There's guilt. You really have done something wrong. We try and escape guilt, but guess what? Guilt is merely saying, you're guilty. You have done something wrong. Justice must be served. And as a result, there's a weight of condemnation against your soul. You're headed nowhere and fast. Actually, you're headed somewhere and fast. It's called hell. Okay? That's a burden, and it's miserable. Some of us don't even recognize that we have it. Nathan's feeling it full force right now. The shackles on his wrists. It's the imprisonment of sin. Do we have a little thing? Oh, yeah, control of sin. You see, he's actually not in control of his life. You know, he thinks he's finding the answer here, but guess what? Something else is controlling him. Look closely at this. You see, this hand is actually manipulating his actions. The right hand in the Hebrew culture is the hand of control, dominance, and authority. And Nathan is actually not in control of his own life. Sin is. He wants to do good, but he's turning to the wrong source to do it. And as a result, he's empowering something else to control his life, which is leading to shackles. And he cannot get out of them. There's no way out of his circumstance. The rope around his chest. It's the oppressions of bitterness and resentment. Have you guys ever felt that tightness in your chest where literally there's an oppression hanging out over your heart? Usually it starts from unforgiveness. When you do not forgive, it opens up a door for bitterness and resentment to come in, which are like diseases. They're like poisons that begin to seep into your body, into your very body, not just your spiritual body, but your physical body, and it kills you. It really does. And it's like a pressure chamber around your chest. It's miserable. And when you start going through this, when you start feeling the effects of bitterness and resentment, you start crying out, I need help. I'm, I'm, a, hurting, I'm a hurting unit. The mischievous character at his right arm. Look at this guy. Look at that mischievous grin. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. You see, this character doesn't want to be seen. He doesn't want to be noticed. You see, he wants Nathan, this Nathan, to believe that this is part of him and that he will always have this and this just attends him and that when this is controlling his right arm, it's actually him controlling his right arm. 
You see, the flesh wants to do what he does slyly and in disguise so that Nathan is not awakened to the fact that he's actually in bondage. He's actually being controlled. We will be a master to something, and if we're not a master, if we're not mastered by Jesus Christ, we're mastered by sin. And that's what's happened to Nathan. See, he doesn't fully know what's happened to him, which is why as a gospel tear, it's important that I know how to carry the good news to him, to identify what's going on in his life, and then to give him the escape, to give him the rescue, to give him the gospel. Nathan, over the years. You see, over the years, Nathan has changed. You see, today he's coming in and he's ripe for the gospel. He hasn't always been ripe for the gospel. Do you mind if we uh, rewind your life back two years? Okay, so we're going to rewind. I don't know what the rewind sound is. Like, we're going to rewind Nathan's life back two years. Back in those days, he always wore this one red hat. I mean, it was a really disgusting hat. Uh, and and he w- he's, he's lost a lot of weight since then. Uh, and, uh, but he... <laughs> Nathan was happy in sin. <laughs> This is, hey, guys, this is serious stuff. So Nathan was struggling. He had a little beer belly back then. Uh, he's worked that off in the last two years. But Nathan did not have any interest. And so Eric might be in his life, but he mocks and holds contempt uh, towards Eric Ludi. He has no interest in any God that I serve. He's happy. He's fulfilled. Why would he change? You see, what should I do when I run into Nathan two years ago? Two years ago... Nathan is not yet reachable. And so what is my job? My job is to live out Jesus and to continue to carry this, even if he mocks me. And he would. He would mock me. If he saw me walking around with this. Unbelievable. Uh, see? That's, that's two-year-old Nathan, okay? Two years passed. The guy had serious issues. You notice that none of this changed. He still has it. He still has all the control. He's still turning to self. He's in bondage, but he doesn't see it. You see, we must be awakened to our need. We must be awakened to the fact that we're in a prison cell. He's not. So what is my job as the gospel tier, as the Christian, as the one who has what's in that bag? It's to begin to pray. It's to begin to pray that he begins to feel the weight of this upon his chest, that he begins to complain about these chains, that he begins to find the emptiness in turning to this self-suitcase, and that he finally sees the flesh exposed in his life, that he is actually not in control of his life. If I commissioned him and I said, I want you to only have pure thoughts, first of all, he would mock it and he wouldn't even try. But if he ever did try, you know what he would find out? It's very easy to sin, and it's impossible for him to turn and go the other direction. See, he thinks he's in control of his life, but he needs to be awakened. My job is to pray. So, let's fast forward a year now. So this is one year ago. Nathan, you know, it was a good year. He started working off. He, he you know, left the bottle and lost some weight. So there's been a progression in Nathan's soul, and now he is miserable in sin. He's actually beginning to feel the weight of all these things. You see, God is working in his life. He doesn't yet have freedom, but God is working. And the first work within his soul is that he's beginning to recognize this is empty. But he doesn't know what else to turn to. You see, when self begins to disappoint us and we begin to realize that it's lacking, and you begin to feel the weight of these chains, you begin to feel the, the, uh, 
the abrasion against your, your wrist. You begin to feel the pressure against your chest. He's losing his heart. He no longer feels anymore. He's like dead inside. And then he begins to recognize that when he's trying to change his ways, he can't. Something else is controlling him. And that mustache really needs to be shaved. <laughs> All right, let's shave it. Uh, all right, here we are today. Nathan is miserable in sin, but something has changed. He's ready. He's ready to reckon. You see, what he's needing today, and this is the gospel tier's point of view. When you're going into this world and you have the gospel, your job is to be sensitive to those who are ready. You're looking for fruit that is ready to be plucked because you have something that they need. And people are dying all over this earth. They're oppressed by the devil. They're oppressed by the power of sin. And you actually have exactly what they need. Okay? So Nathan comes to me today, and that's what this whole thing is. Nathan has come to me, and he needs something. And he's ready for it. I recognize that he's ready for it. So we're ready to do some business. It's time for Nathan. He's ready to receive the old suitcase. It's going to be hard for Nathan, and I'm not going to try and diminish that it would be hard for you too. Because literally, to receive this old suitcase, he has to give up something that looks good to the world. You see, he has something that the world esteems here. And everyone tells him, this is good, Nathan. You're doing the right thing by carrying around this suitcase. I like how that looks. It's a good size one. You know what? Most people's suitcase, self-suitcase, is a little smaller than this. It's a huge one. He's got a high self-confidence rating. This guy has made a dent in society. He's a talented guy. He's going somewhere. However, he's dying while he's going somewhere. And so as a result, he's needy. And he's needing the gospel. However, remember what the gospel looks like? You see, something is beginning to change in Nathan, where he's always mocked this, but now he's looking at a gospel tier like Eric Ludy, and he's saying, he still is sort of strange. But I have to admit, he has something. He's not oppressed by the same things I am. I think he has something. I can't imagine that the answer is Jesus, but if it is, I need it. Only God can bring you to that place, by the way. You don't bring yourself to that place. This is God's grace. God is working graciously in Nathan, yet at the same time, even though God is working, guess what? He still has all the old entrapments of sin. He still needs to be set free. So the Apostle Paul's carrying case for all his mighty weaponry. I know this looks like a cheap old carpet bag. However, this belonged to the Apostle Paul. And this is the bag that the Apostle Paul carried around all his mightiest weaponry in. Everything that was needed for life and godliness. You impressed with Paul? So am I. How would you like to have his carrying case? Well, his carrying case has been bequeathed in full unto a man named Nathan. And so I'm going to read a letter that Paul wrote to Nathan 1,900 years ago, or over 1,900 years ago. Dear Nathan, I realize that we never met personally. But I have it on good word that the grace of God has come to you and that you will be delivered this note along with my precious carrying case. I left these items with a local UPS outfit in Rome prior to my beheading over 1,900 years ago. If all goes according to plan, it should have been delivered to a Mr. Eric Ludi, he probably mispronounced it and said Luddy, from Windsor, Colorado on August 19th, the year of our Lord, 2012. I had a staff person that told me that UPS doesn't deliver on Sundays. This is spiritual delivery. And subsequently passed along to you. To make it clear, though, this case, though this case be old by the time you receive it, its inner contents are and ever will be fully operational, for they never age. 
Again, its contents will work for you in the precise fashion that they have faithfully worked for me. After all, truth is truth, and its truthfulness will never wear out. Now, a quick review of the case's contents. I've not left anything out. You have within this case everything you could possibly need for life and godliness. Everything you need to reveal the divine nature and to bring glory into the name of Jesus Christ. As it was mine, so now it is yours. As Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, so I give all I have to you. That's the heart of a gospel tear. You see, this says Jesus on it. Jesus is the good news. It's a person. It's not a plan. It's not a prayer. It's a person. What you're passing along in full is the glory of God. You're passing along the work of the cross. You're passing along a person. Jesus. It's called the gospel. To access the contents of this case is easy, but it is only those who believe that can gain its treasures. In order to access the contents, you will need to enter a code into the lock. Now remember this code. The code is R-E-C-K-O-N. Reckon. He cannot gain what's in that case without reckoning it by faith. The rest will make sense to you once you take possession of the case. I've given Mr. Ludi instructions on how to make the transfer. Carry this case in such a way that all may know its marvelous contents. See you in glory, dear friend. Paul. Now, hopefully you guys all can offer grace. I'm not trying to put words in the mouth of Paul. I'm giving an illustration. Of something has been passed along, and it's been passed along in full. 1,900 years has passed, and this bag isn't looking any prettier today than it did back then. However, that which is inside the bag, though the outside may not look pretty to the firstborn eyes, what is inside this bag will turn the world on its head. Gospel tearing in the modern day, preparing a soul to reckon. So if I'm dealing with Nathan, what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk him through the preparation to receive this bag. Okay? So in the process, I would say, Nathan... In Hebrews, it says one of the most critical dimensions of you being able to believe is that you must believe that God is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Do you believe that, Nathan, that God is and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him? I, I, I do. You see, Nathan is going to be fairly malleable today. Okay, He's not going to be belligerent. I've dealt in giving the gospel with many people that ask a lot of questions, and that's perfectly fine. Nathan isn't going to ask a tremendous amount of questions today. He's going to, we're going to be demonstrating a process of preparing a soul for what I would call a legal hold over their soul to present the living word of God, the fact of God's word. You see, it's supernatural that Nathan believes that God is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. There's tons of people in this world that don't know that. And yet, for some reason, he does now. Something has changed in him. He knows God's there. And he knows God is the only one who can help him. How does he know this? Because I haven't been talking to him, maybe. But something is taking place within him to ready him to hear the words of truth. So, one of the first things I would ask Nathan is, Nathan, do you believe that God can lie? No, I'm confident that he cannot lie. And so, there's this principal point of the fact that a lot of us are, not a lot of us, in here, maybe most of us would say, God cannot lie. Actually, that's what the Bible says. But what's interesting is if you believe God can lie, if you believe he's not truth, if you believe that there is shadow of turning in him, that he changes his mind and that he, you know, mixes things up and then he gets it wrong sometimes, well, guess what? You have no confidence in fact. And as a result, it's very difficult to reckon truth. In fact, impossible. 
And so what I would do with a soul, if they are unable to see that God cannot lie, and they can't see the most basic nature of God, then they're not yet ready to press forward. So this is literally what I would ask them. So you believe God cannot lie? Correct. Okay. Do you believe the Word of God is the Word of God? Yes. Okay, so the Word of God is the Word of God, which means it's not just, even though it was written by men, you believe that it still is the Word of God. All right? So if the Word of God is the Word of God, and God cannot lie, do you believe that the Word of God cannot lie? I guess that makes sense. So what I'm doing in this is I would have him declare, and I would say, first of all, I want you to declare with your mouth, God cannot lie. And I want you to act like you're on a stand, uh, it, like in a court of law before the heavenlies. And I want you to declare your position on the matter. Either God can lie or he cannot. Tell me. You see, some of us would say, God can do whatever he wants. If he wants to lie, he can lie. He's God. And you sound all nice to God in saying that. However, God himself says he cannot lie. Sure, God could do whatever he wants, but he can't lie. He's truth. And in truth is no lie. And so therefore, he cannot lie. He will not lie. The strength of Israel will not lie, it says. He is not like men that he should lie. God does not lie. Okay, so I would say, Nathan, could you make a declaration on the stand before the heavenly host, the host of hell and heaven, and all the people before us, God cannot lie. Uh, sure. I, I firmly believe that God cannot lie. Can you also make a declaration that the word of God is the word of God? Uh, yeah, I, I believe that the word of God is the word of God, and therefore it too cannot lie. See, what I've done in this, in this discussion is what I would say is I've put a legal hold over him. It's like a full Nelson spiritually. So that when I now bring the truth of the word of God to him, what does he say? Well, that is the word of God, and it cannot lie. He can't consult experience and say, but, but that, that isn't true for me. Well, I don't care if it's true for you. It's true in the Bible. This is what God says. I don't care what your experience is. This is what God says. And so I have a reasoning point for his soul. You see, we live in a postmodern era where logic is not allowed. However, God is logical. I didn't come up with that. He did. And two plus two does equal four. And I can thank God for that. How confusing would it be? But in spiritual truth today, spiritual mathematics today, you know what many of the leaders of the church are saying? Well, two plus two equals four for you, dear brother. Well, two plus two equals four in the Bible. And that's all that matters to any of us. I don't care what it means to you. I know what it means to God. That's what we must deal with. If this man wants to be set free, you know what makes a man free? You know what it says in the Bible? Truth. Truth shall set you free. Truth. If you don't have truth, you're not made free. Just because you feel good about something, oh, that's an interesting notion, and it has the word Jesus in it, doesn't mean it's truth. We must get truth out of the word of God. And so... What I would bring him through is I'd basically say, in the word of God, it says that you must put off an old man and put on a new man. And so I would literally prepare him for the concept of being in Christ. But what I've done is I've set the stage for his soul to begin to bring the word of God to bear. And the first thing I'm going to deal with is this case. His suitcase in exchange for the old carpet bag. Except in the old carpet bag, forsaking the sleek, hip, rolling suitcase. See, Nathan, this is your problem. You've been looking to yourself for the answer. You're digging inside. You see, you're sitting on the throne of your life, and that throne was meant for Jesus Christ. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is repent of that. I want you to change your mind in regards to the value of this suitcase in your life. I want you to forsake it and give it up. And I would like you to give it up in exchange for that. 
You see, this is a challenging moment, and this is the very beginnings of soul transaction. It's one thing to know that God cannot lie. It's another thing to know that his word is truth, but will you believe it? When it comes to actually getting up and taking the 20, or in this case, the 10, sorry, when you take the $10 bill, you have to get out of your comfort zone. You have to start walking. There's a lot of doctors in this room that could be saying, he actually believes it? Yeah, he does. Do you believe that this is your only salvation? Do you believe that this is the only way that you can be rescued? And what happens inside of Nathan? Well, what does happen inside of Nathan? It doesn't look that appealing or fun. But with your natural eyes, it may not. But do you believe the word of God when it, it declares that this is the only means of salvation, the only way to be rescued from your oppressions, the only way to be set free from your sin? Do you believe it? That's what it says in the word of God, which cannot lie. Well, I need it. And I guess if that's my only solution and answer, I, I want it. Are you willing to prove that by giving up and forsaking your suitcase in exchange for it? Okay, so what we have, even though it might be a challenge, and some of us see it more clearly, our eyes are being opened and we actually see some beauty in this thing, but there's a tremendous challenge. A lot of us are struggling with the fact of what we will look like in the world, which by the way, you know who's whispering that? See, look at this. Oh, there's that mischievous grin. What do you think he's whispering in Nathan's ear the whole time I'm talking? He's whispering that if you take that bag, you will be a laughing stock in this world. Look at him. Okay, now I'm getting mad. As I'm talking to Nathan, I know what's whispering to him. And I'm saying, Nathan, focus. Remember what God has been awakening you to. There is only one means of salvation. You see, I'm ready to hit this character in the teeth. But he must accept. You know that I cannot force Nathan to make a decision? It's a very frustrating thing as a gospel tear. It's only the Spirit of God that can awaken him to see his need for this and to cry out for it. What must I do to be saved? And then I say, you must exchange your suitcase for this. Nathan forsakes and gives up, repents, turns, changes his mind on that which once supplied him strength in life. And he takes on and identifies with his king. Doesn't look good to the world. However, this is literally Paul the Apostle's carrying case to carry his military instruments for war in. Everything that is needful for life and godless. I know it doesn't look good, but everything's there. Okay? So he forsook the sleek hip rolling suitcase. What he needs to begin to do is access that which is within this. If you are outside the plane and you want to fly, what do you need to do? You need to get in the plane. You must gain access to that which is within Christ. Christ has everything available for us in him. If we're outside of him, the merit and the strength of that plane is actually not ours. And that's how most of us have lived our life. We esteem Christ, but we don't have the benefits of that which is within him. And inside this case is everything he needs for life and godliness. How is he going to access it? This is sort of the interesting part the first item I'm going to tell him, Nathan, okay, you have taken on this suitcase, this carpet bag, and I'm here to tell you that everything you're going to need is now available to you. Now, I'm going to skip over a few things, not because they're not important, but just for streamlining this. For instance, there's a process of repentance. There's a process of renouncing. There's a process of seeking forgiveness from God. There's a process of actually forgiving others. When you're walking someone through the gospel, there's very important things that actually affect this whole transaction. 
but we're going to keep it fairly simple. I'm going to tell them that there's actually a superhero suit in here. Okay, now listen to this. Inside this case is an ancient bodysuit. This is a really awkward way of saying this. It's designed to fully cover you from head to toe. To be frank, it looks quite strange to the onlooking world. They will certainly laugh at you when you put it on, but put it on you must. Look at the flesh as he's, yeah. Look at that's just classic flesh right there. Oh, look at him. Uh, they will certainly laugh at you when you put it on, but put it on you must, for everything that is necessary in your rescue is gained only through getting into this superhero outfit. This bodysuit is not merely clothing, it is armor. This is the body of Jesus. This bodysuit is his actual life. I realize that may sound strange, but Christ must become actual clothing to you. This is imperative, for if you are in him, then everything else in this suitcase can be accessed. If you refuse the clothing, you are refusing everything else that has been made available to you, for it is made available to you in Christ. Okay, so I speak to him and I say, in the word of God, it says that clothing has made, been made available to you in Christ. And so it's up to him. Remember what Tim did when he was reckoning truth. And I spoke and I said, if you believe me, believe my word, then you have the confidence that you have it in actuality. You've reckoned it in your pocket. So taking the Christ clothing by faith. Nathan is unable to open this. Okay, let's try, try and open this. Hmm, that didn't work. Some of you are saying, use the zipper, buddy. Uh, but he's unable to open it. That's symbolic. We are not able to access the innards, if you will, the power of Jesus Christ in our own strength. There's only one way to access that which belongs to Jesus, and that is to access it by faith. When you access by faith, you actually take from what is in Christ and gain it in this natural realm. Do you remember that we started, fact, faith, experience? You see, Nathan's experience is defeat. However, right now, by faith, he's going to say, but I'm turning to Jesus now. And Jesus has promised. And I believe Jesus. And when he believes Jesus, he actually accesses things inside of Jesus that otherwise he could never access. But he accesses it by faith. And the first thing he must have is he must be in Christ Jesus. Everything in this bag, except for one thing, is accessed by being in Christ. The first thing, being in Christ, is accessed even though he's not pure and even though he's not righteous, even though he's not holy, he can access it by faith. Everything else from that point is accessed because he's in Christ. And so this is the very first step is we actually must take that Christ clothing by faith. So what I would do for him is I would begin to give him scripture. I would begin to give him the word that he says cannot lie. And I'd say for all the promises of God in him, in Christ, are yes. And in him are amen under the glory of God. So... There are promises that have been made available. And if he's in Christ, he has access to all the promises. Who wouldn't want to be in Christ? Who wouldn't want to put on the clothing? For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him. Now I'm just going to stop there. You are complete in him. This is what is necessary for Nathan. He must access the bodysuit. He must access the clothing, the garments of salvation. How does he do that? He can't break into the bag himself in his own strength. He must believe that it has been supplied for him by Jesus Christ. And when he believes, and he takes it, and he credits it to his account, just like I asked Tim, I said, do you have what you need to face the test? And Tim says, yes. 
So if I asked Nathan, do you have access to the bodysuit? What would you say? Well, <clears throat> you, you told me it's there, so yes. Because God has promised that it's there. Listen to this. For as many of you as been, have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So when you enter into Christ, you literally have access to him. But put you on the Lord Jesus Christ, it says in Romans 13, Nathan. And make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. So you are literally supposed to put on Christ Jesus. Is that the word of God? Yes. Can it lie? No. Should you heed it? Yes. So what should you do? Obey it and put them on. So if you can't access what's in that bag through your own strength, are you willing to trust that God has made provision for you? When I say God has spoken and said he's made a garment available to you. Look at Isaiah 61. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Will you take that by faith? Because the way that you access that bodysuit is by believing. And when you believe, you are clothed in it. See, what Nathan wants is to actually see the clothing. What he itches for is to actually see the bodysuit. And some of you are thinking, what's that bodysuit going to look like? You can't see it with natural eyes. And that's what's tricky about the kingdom of heaven. You must access it by faith. But what will happen? When he sticks on the bodysuit, his experience will begin to line up with the facts. I just spoke to him. And so his experience will testify to the fact that he really is in a bodysuit. But it's not a visible bodysuit. So will you take it by faith that there is a bodysuit made available to you in Christ? Yes, I believe. The moment he believes is the moment he's clothed. And so Nathan Johnson is clothed in a bodysuit known as Jesus Christ. From the moment he believes, he accesses, like he enters the plane. Now the law of gravity that has always been against him outside the plane no longer has effect. He is dead to the law of gravity. Even though the law of gravity still exists out there, he's dead to its powers because he's now in the law of aerodynamics. Okay, so Nathan is actually in the bodysuit right now. And when he enters the bodysuit, there's a few benefits that come with this bodysuit, okay? Because when you are in the blood of Christ, which is what that means, it's the robe of righteousness. You just picture a red robe wrapped around us. It's literally the righteousness of Christ, the perfection of Jesus Christ. Then suddenly, things are made available to him. You know that this thing around his... Actually, let's start with the burden on your back that I don't get to see very often uh, because I, I can't see it. What does it say on it? It says, guilt and condemnation. Do you know what's available in Christ? It says forgiveness of sin is available in Christ. That's what it says in the Bible. If you are in Christ, you know what you have? You have forgiveness of sin. You are literally washed and cleansed by the blood of Jesus when you're in him. When you believe upon him, all your sins are washed away. Now, here's, it's even more amazing. Your conscience can be, can be purged. Remember the, you know, that guilt? That stabbing guilt from your past? Washed. Cleansed. Are you in a bodysuit? Yes, I am. By faith, he's in a bodysuit. And now, by faith, he takes the next thing in the bag, which is forgiveness of your sin. That this guilt can be washed from you. Your condemnation is no more over you because you are in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If he's in Christ Jesus, this is a benefit that comes with it. It's in the bag. Are you willing to take that? Absolutely. And then what happens? This comes off your shoulders. Sure. It's like 100 pounds lighter. Isn't that amazing? That's why this is called good news. You see, Nathan, <laughs> Nathan, oh. Nathan has believed. 
And now he believed fact, and his faith was fixed on fact. And what happened in his experience? His experience is literally a lightness on his shoulders. Something that has always weighed on him has changed. I mean, it's truly amazing. If any of you have ever gone through this, it's remarkable. It's amazing. However, he still has some of the effects of sin upon him. So let's keep walking through this. You see, right here, he has bitterness and resentment, which has probably come into his life through the door of unforgiveness. You know what it says? That we have forgiveness in Christ Jesus. That doesn't just mean that he's forgiven. It also means that God, in and through this bodysuit, is supplying him with the grace to forgive others. And so he might never have been able to forgive others up to this point. But now he's actually able to be a flow-through channel because he's in Christ. To not just be forgiven of his own sin, but to forgive others of their sins against him. And I know that some of you are like, I don't want to forgive. Oh, you do. Oh, you do, because it will set you free. You are not meant to hold unforgiveness. It will cripple your soul. It does not allow the life of Christ in and through you. And if you do not forgive, do you know that that backpack will come back on his back? If he refuses to forgive by the grace that God has given him in and through what he's gaining out of this case, then that backpack will end up on his shoulders again. Because God cannot forgive us if we do not allow ourselves to be a flow-through channel of his forgiveness in and through us. Are you willing to forgive those that have harmed you? You have the grace. It's in this bag. Everything that is needed for you to be able to forgive those that have harmed you, that has caused this bitterness and resentment, you can actually now be freed of it. And that rope that is tying around your chest and oppressing your chest cavity and killing your inner life can be removed. Are you willing to accept that by faith? Yes, I want it very much so. (laughs) The moment he does, the moment he believes that that is made available in this case, that in Jesus is forgiveness, in Jesus is the power to forgive, well, guess what? What begins to be removed from him is an amazing thing. If any of you have ever struggled with bitterness and resentment, I tell you what, there's nothing quite like coming to Jesus Christ. There's nothing quite like being able to forgive for the first time in your life. And suddenly this man who has always been oppressed by bitterness and resentment and it's been like a disease in his soul now is in a position because he's in that bodysuit to renounce the hold of bitterness and resentment in his soul. How are you doing there? Not good. <laughs> but it's gone. It's gone. Even though it's taken a while to get into the trash can. That's like some of us too. There's something else that can be dealt with, but we're going to walk through this one step at a time. Okay, he's been clothed in Christ, and as a result, the merits of his shed blood, what's in this bag, is available to him. All that Christ is, is available to him. Atonement, propitiation of sin, washing and cleansing, forgiveness, redemption in his blood. There is victory over the devil, power over sin. All these things are available. But I want to walk very specifically through item number two. In this bag that Paul has left us, which was handed to Paul from Jesus Christ, there are manumission papers. Those are legally binding documents that were given to slaves in ye olden days. And so when a slave was set free by its master, it would be given a piece of paper with a governmental seal upon it, signed by the governor. And if anyone ever said, hey, you're a slave, you know what he could do? He could hold up the manumission papers in that person's nose And they were legally binding. If someone tried to stop him from being free, they would be imprisoned. And so therefore, manumission papers are extremely important. And Nathan has manumission papers in this bag, signed by the blood of Jesus himself, legally binding documents, which declare this, that he is dead to the power of sin. And that the old man, old Nathan, 
actually has no more power over his, over his life. There has been a severing of that which has held Nathan down. This guy has no legal right to stay around. He was decimated in his power on the cross, and he cannot remain any longer. Old Nathan is dead 2,000 years ago, but unless new Nathan reckons that and takes it, he will continue to live under the power and the control of old Nathan. And so what I would do is I would speak to Nathan, and I would say, you are ruled by an old man, a fallen nature, a corrupted internal government. But inside this case, you will find legally binding manumission papers that declare that your old man is dead. Did you hear that? These papers, when authoritatively exerted, will force the old man out and extinguish his power over your life. You know, you're going to watch. Nathan's losing interest in what this guy has to say. And he's recognizing this is actually his problem. For all these years, you see, because he gave up his suitcase... Because he gave up his suitcase, he's now available. He's now able to access all that is in Jesus. And because he's able to access all that is in Jesus, he's able to access all the work of Jesus. Jesus went to the cross. You know what he accomplished at the cross? Well, let's read. That you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man. He's supposed to put it off. He's supposed to literally throw it aside. He puts on Christ, but what does he put off? He throws off. He shrugs off. The old man, which is corrupt. You listen to this, old man. You're corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Ah, look at that mischievous grin. <laughs> listen to Romans 6.6. 6. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. Is that fact? That's the word of God. Oh, did you want to make a comment on that? <laughs> and God cannot lie. It says, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Know you not, Nathan, that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ? What's your body suit? You're baptized into Christ, which means immersed. The word baptizo means to be inside something, immersed in it. So you are immersed into Jesus Christ, that you were baptized into his death. When he died on that cross, did you know that old Nathan died too? That this life no longer has power and sway and authority over Nathan. He's dead. So what I would encourage Nathan to do is I would encourage him to declare that. But let's see if there's another scripture here. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Likewise, Paul says, reckon you also yourself to be dead indeed unto sin. He's supposed to reckon. Remember our word? R-E-C-K-O-N. Remember what Tim did? He took it by faith. Your experience, almost every single one of us in this room, we can testify. We know what it's like to have old Nathan lingering at our right arm. I mean, uh, this guy needs to go. Uh, we know what it's like. And as a result, if we look at our experience when we get to this part of this message, you could say, oh, there's no way to get away from old Nathan. You just can't. We're all subjected to old Nathan. What does the word of God say? The old man is crucified. It no longer has power. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you would obey it in the lusts thereof. You must follow fact and not experience. And so what I would encourage Nathan to make a declaration of is that his old man is dead. Are you willing to do that? Sure. I, f I firmly believe upon the word of God that my flesh died 2,000 years ago. And though my experience is not 
been evidence of that up to this point. I believe that he, at this moment, from henceforth, is now dead and has no longer any hold on my life, and he oh, has yeah. to leave. So goodbye. Now, what we see in that is very important. Nathan had to take it by faith in believing the word of God, and then the experience follows suit. We're wanting to feel free from sin before we believe. God asks us to believe in the word of God that the old man is dead, that we have the manumission papers. They've been there 2,000 years, but what do we do? We look at our experience. We say, I've always been defeated. If he did it 2,000 years ago, then I would have been living in success all these years. No, you were not living in faith. It's only faith that accesses that which is within Jesus. And so therefore, what we see is a transformation. When that right hand of Nathan is let go of, now suddenly these shackles cannot remain. Because that which is causing him to be in bondage has been severed. It's called in the Bible circumcision. Now, if you were to define circumcision the way they did in the Old Testament, it means the removal of flesh. That's exactly what this is. This is the removal of flesh. It's the circumcision of Jesus Christ. He has cut off the flesh. And as a result, prove it. Watch. Those have no more power over him. That's the control of sin, by the way. He no longer is controlled by sin because he has reckoned the old man dead. Feels good, doesn't it? It's amazing. You're looking sort of normal again. Praise Jesus. <laughs> Item number three, new heart and new blood. I know it seems strange that in this carpet bag is a new heart and a whole supply of blood. Blood in the Hebrew culture is life. You need a new life. You see, your old life is corrupt. But there's a new heart and a new life. Nathan's old heart is stone. But there's a new heart that is soft and malleable and actually beats with God's burdens. Inside this case is a living organ and all the lifeblood necessary to see it fully operational inside your spiritual chest cavity. When you sever your connection with the old man, you simultaneously will notice that your old heart, made of stone, is removed. And a place is made for a new life, a new heart, to be transplanted within. This new life is the very life of Jesus. It's God's life. For God doesn't just bring death to your old life but gives you a new abundant life in its place. You ever heard of eternal life? Eternal life, a lot of us think that it, that means we're in heaven. Eternal just means it has no beginning and no ending. It's eternal. It's God's life. You know that God's life is made available to Nathan the moment that he comes to Jesus? He has eternal life. He has abundant life in Christ Jesus. That's where it's located. If you're in Christ Jesus, you have life, and it is eternal. It will last forever, but it's now, too. He needs life, and he needs it now. What's the good of just living in his old, miserable state while he's here on earth? He has life, and it's available to him now. And guess where it's found? Uh-huh. In Christ. And so he has access to everything in Christ. And so what it says in Ezekiel 36 is, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put in you. You might as well put Nathan in front of that. Nathan, a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put in you. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism, immersion into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. You may never have felt life in your entire life. And what you're saying, I'll believe that I have new life when I experience it. No. You take new life the same way you took everything else. You reckon it by the word of God. God has made it very clear that you have newness of life in Christ Jesus. You're waiting for the experience. Are you willing to bank it all on the fact of Scripture and say, God has made 
new life available to me in Christ Jesus. It's in here. It's in here. And if you're willing to reckon it, you have it, and your experience will soon match up. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. See, it's amazing. Nathan has been crucified with Christ. We've seen a severing of old man dead. So Nathan died. I know that sounds strange. Here is, this is what Paul's saying. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Here he is. He's alive. But not I, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in this body, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the miracle of new birth. And here's Romans 6.11. Likewise, reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We're not just supposed to reckon ourselves to be dead unto sin. We're supposed to reckon ourselves alive unto God. You reckon it. You take it by faith. See, we're waiting to feel life. Are you willing to reckon it? It's made available. Where is it made available to you in? Christ. Is it in the bag or not? Do you believe the word of God or not? If you believe the word of God, if you're in Christ Jesus, everything in this bag is yours. Everything. And I tell you what, there is so much in this bag. It's sort of like Mary Poppins' bag where you can just keep pulling things out. It's extraordinary. Item number four, the king's signet ring. This is pretty exciting. This doesn't take up a lot of room in here. It's a signet ring. And when you carry the signet ring of the king, literally you can do business for the king. Internationally. Universally. You literally carry the mark of the king. And in any situation, they will let you in because you represent the king of all kings. Nathan, did you know that Jesus Christ, if you are in him, he's like a plane. And he's on the way to the Father. And on the way to the Father, he stopped at the cross. And when he stopped at the cross, he died. And when you're in him, so did you die. And as a result, old Nathan is crucified. And then he was buried, and so was your old behavior. So you no, need, no longer need to see it. The world no longer needs to see your old man. He's buried. And then he rose again, and so did you. And you have newness of life in Christ Jesus. And then where did he go? He ascended, and he went to the right hand of the Father. How did you get to the right hand of the Father? You're in Christ. Where did he go? To the right hand of the Father. You know what it says in Scripture of where you're located if you're in Christ? It says that you're where he is. Now listen to this. Amazingly, this case also contains, speaking of this case, the signet ring of the king of all kings. He has bequeathed to you the right to wield his almighty authority. Ephesians 1 says, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Where's Jesus seated? At the right hand in heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. So he's above everything. Now listen to this line. And hath put all things under his feet. If all things are under his feet, what's not under his feet? In the Hebrew culture, the feet are the symbol of dominion, control, authority. So when something's under your feet, that means you control it. All things are under his feet. Can the Bible lie? No, it bears the nature of Almighty God. All things are under the feet of Jesus. It's just a fact. Okay, now here's what's amazing. Where are we located? 
We're in Christ. And if we're in Christ, his death is our death. His burial, our burial. His resurrection, our resurrection. His ascension, our ascension. Where's he seated? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He brought you to the Father. You're right by the Father's heart. You've been brought into the Holy of Holies by Jesus Christ, by his blood. You have been brought near. Oh, what an amazing reality. But then, where did Jesus sit down? At the right hand. Remember what right means? Authority, dominion, control. The Father gave him all dominion, authority, and control. And where are you? You're in him. So listen to Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved, and hath raised us up together, listen to this, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Where are we seated? Where are you seated? In Christ. And where is he? At the right hand of the Father. So, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and you're in him. All things are under his feet. And where are you? In him, which means all things underneath my feet. That's right. You see, he's in the position of authority. And he has the king's signet ring. We are not pushed around by the devil. We are not pushed around by the power of sin. All things are under the feet of Jesus. And for whatever reason, we're in him. He wants us there. He bequeathed to us this authority, this strength, this command. So that we can tell the powers of the devil what to do as opposed to be bullied around by him. Good news. Amazing news. We'd be funneling news. There is so much more in this carpet bag. We can't go into it. So Nathan and I would have to spend more time. Because there's so much in this carpet bag. When I walk people through the gospel, oh, three to five hours, typically, if someone's dead serious about Jesus Christ, not just a quick prayer, we walk through the realities of being in Christ and what that means. And it is life, abundant, full of glory. So let me just give you a hint of what else. And so if I'm talking to Nathan, I'm like, there's so much more. Here's a small sampling. Unlimited amounts of love. Do you know that in this is unlimited amounts of love. Every bit of love you're going to need to be able to live this Christian life. It says you will know my disciples by their love. How are you going to get that love? You're going to find it in your suitcase? No. You find it in him. Incorrigible cheerfulness. Overwhelming joy. Uh huh. Peace that passes all understanding. It's all in there. Power to forgive those who wrong you. Bewildering endurance, courage, and calm to face any difficulty. Boy, I... In my old life, I'd take one of those things and give up my life to secure it. Yet all of those things are just available in Christ, the entire inheritance. We do not deserve any of it. All we deserve is to be punished for our disobedience. The moment you grab a hold of that self-suitcase once, you deserve hell for all eternity. Once! Most of us have trucked it around our life our entire time. We've shown absolute disregard to the King of Kings who has made everything available to us. How did he do it? How did he make this available to us? By giving up his life. He suffered and died so that we would have it. What are we willing to do to keep it, to guard it, and to pass it along to others? Carrying the carpet bag proudly. Listen to this. Carrying the carpet bag proudly. For whosoever shall be ashamed of me in my words... Whosoever should be ashamed of me, the carpet bag. Of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed. And when he shall come in his own glory and in his father's and, the whole, and of the holy angels. You're ashamed of God? 
He'll be ashamed of you in the end. It's that simple. He already knows that he doesn't look attractive to this earth. The eyes of the firstborn will reject us. They will mock us. They will ridicule us. The same way they treated Jesus is the way they'll treat us. For we have the substance of Jesus. Jesus lives in us. We are the house, the dwelling place of Jesus. By the way, that's in the bag too. It's the very life of God imparted, known as the Holy Spirit. It's there to fill Nathan, to enable him to love, to serve, to give, to live holy for the glory of God. Listen to this. Paul goes out of his way to say, Hey guys, I'm not ashamed of this bag. Knowing full well that it looks like an idiot's bag. He even says that. I'm considered idiotes. An idiot in this world. I'm a fool for Christ because I have the audacity to lift high the ugly looking carpet bag. However, I'm here to tell you, I'm unashamed of it. I'm unashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. All things given. Nathan has been imparted, not a partial amount of the inheritance. But when it was handed to him, it was handed to him in a person known as Jesus Christ. And if he's in Christ, he has access to every bit of it. Not because he did something right. Not because he lived a pure and spotless life. He did anything but. Do you remember two years ago? Remember that red hat and the bulging beer belly that he had? Uh huh. The guy hasn't lived a good life. On his own merit, out of his own suitcase, he has nothing to prove before God. The judgment day comes and he pulls out his red hat. And he goes, well, I have a red hat. It doesn't count. It's not going to meet the sniff test of perfect righteousness. And yet, God in his condescending grace has seen fit to rescue Nathan Johnson. And to make all that he has available to him. Not just to rescue him from damnation. Not to just put a little patch on his life and say, this will make you feel better. Be warm and well fed. But he literally gives up everything he is. Makes himself available. Says, dig inside me. Find every bit of me. Explore the outer reaches of my being. And all that you find belongs to you. All things given. According as his, as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. The exceeding great and precious promises are all in here. That by these you might become partakers of the divine nature. Did you guys hear that? Do, do most Christians even believe that we can become partakers of the divine nature and actually showcase God to this world? We're men and women. We're faulty. We're pathetic. We have our little rolling suitcase that we're all cool with and hip with. We have our swagger as we walk through the airport. Meanwhile, we can't fly. We need to get out of our way of doing things and finally agree with God and get eyesight of the second born. You know what? I'm attracted to Jesus. I love the gospel. And I am unashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation. I've seen it work in so many lives. I understand what Paul is saying with that. This is good news. We'll finish with this. And Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac. It's the second born. It's the one born in faith. What Nathan is in this picture is he's Isaac. He's the one that was born second. He's the twice born. 
He's been born again. And as a result, all that is made available in Christ Jesus is given to him. And Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac. And Jesus gave all that he had unto us. Isn't that amazing? Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.